Hello and welcome to Navara FM, brought to you by Navara Media and broadcast live on Resonance 104.4 FM, London's finest and perhaps freakiest of radio stations. I am James Butler. The last few years have been expectation-defying, frustrating, exciting, stressful, hopeful, bitter and a variety of any other adjective you can choose for anyone on the left in Britain. Few have had so unique a view of that period as James Schneider, who was not only involved in the initial wave of Corbyn enthusiasm way back in 2015, certainly feels way back right now, uh, and in setting up momentum, but has since then worked in the leader's office of the Labour Party as Director of Strategic Communications. Uh, That's a pretty singular vantage point on the last few years, and he's in the studio with me today, I think for his first press interview since leaving the leader's office uh, just a That's right, yeah. Great. Uh, Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Had you on before you entered your uh, mandated period of silence, um, back back when you were a momentum honcho. Um, so I'm, very, I'm glad to welcome you back. Uh, and as I understand it, of course, you are you you are very familiar with Resonance FM, having in a previous life um, done a show here. Absolutely, yeah. I had um, <clears throat> I used to come here every week. I think it was on a Thursday for a show called Talking Africa mm-hmm. with um, Joseph Ocheno and Sonny Decker, and it was it's wonderful. It's very good to be back here. Great. So two things before we start today is, of course, Brexit Day today. And Britain will leave the European Union as its Article 50 period comes to a close. The right-wing tabloids are in a state of narcotic jubilation, uh, with The Sun producing a really spectacularly strange commemorative poster emblazoned with Britain, we're the greatest, at the top, and a host of British folk heroes like some demented Sergeant Pepper (laughs) cover uh, plastered all over it. And a corner of anti-Brexit politicians or people who are thought to be anti-Brexit politicians photoshopped as zombies or corpses. I can't, I can't quite work it out at the bottom. Truly, James Gilray lives among us, and I'm sure we'll come to talk about Brexit a bit today. I also want to do a rare and awkward bit of self-promotion, uh, which I find a little bit like pulling teeth, but one has to do it, apparently. For the latest issue of the London Review of Books, I've written a long piece on the election and the defeat. I think it's quite good, and I think you should all read it. It's on the LRB's website now, and if you're a subscriber, the hard copy should pop through your doors soon, so go look at that, please. That's that. So, (laughs) interviews like this one offer a sort of singular temptation as well. Uh, I I think everyone does want to hear, if not exactly gossip, then a bit about how it actually was inside the leadership um, for events that most of us have only seen from the outside. And actually, you know, there's a degree to which I think that is important, especially for the wider left, uh, because sometimes it's been hard to figure out exactly what's going on at, at the top, or even to understand the way in which decisions are made and the pressures particular to a left leadership of the Labour Party. And we've seen some of that this week with this story that's been circulating about quitting MPs back in 2016 during the coup, deleting uh, essential files and so on. But I hope we can use these these conversations also to dig a little bit deeper into the lessons and difficulties that face any left-wing movement in the UK and I think beyond in the next few years. So I think just to start, I think for people who don't know, you were Director of Strategic Communications, a bit of an arcane title. What did it involve? My title was even more peculiar because <laughs> I, was, I was Head of Strategic Communications and Spokesperson. And I mean, when I came in, which was just after party conference in 2016, just after Jeremy had won the the second leadership election, which I'd worked on, uh, the party machine was still run by forces hostile to the left and hostile to Jeremy, um, and the leader's office was quite substantially understaffed and and underpowered, and um, myself and Sean Jones, who'd also worked on the second leadership campaign, we were just sort of grabbed in and given you know whatever role that we could in the comms team to help help beef it up and then over time i sort of worked out what was going on and took on you know a sort of wider and um yeah wider and broader role but part of it the spokesperson part of that overly long title basically means the first port of call with the nation's media on behalf of uh, well on to begin with jeremy and then after the 2017 election when 
we were when we really sort of had more control over more of more elements of the party than speaking on behalf of the party as well. So um, often when you see in <clears throat> some newspaper report, you know, a Labour Party spokesperson said that would often be that would often be me. So there's there's that element. And then I also worked on a whole range of other things, uh, interventions, occasionally bits of policy, speeches and, um, you know, with Jeremy for interviews and that sort of thing. OK, I, I I keep asking this question of guests and I, I will at some point stop asking it. Um, but it's an interesting one for you. Where were you on election night and mm. how was it when the results came through? Um, I was in a party HQ, uh, which is uh, on Victoria Street near Westminster. And um, I was sitting at my desk. I was watching it. Um, and I couldn't really see anybody else because I was very close to the very close to the screen, and I'd spent you know the last half an hour or so rushing to get agreed our like you know we had sort of standard lines for for if we lost but not if we lost that big, and uh, really trying to agree what our approach would be if there were a hung parliament and th- what we would do then in the in the the narrative war which would set in straight away to force Boris Johnson out of office and then when it hit I mean there was just a kind of there was a shocked silence I mean I I felt very numb and very numb for a while I mean I didn't really emotionally um, engage with it or couldn't really emotionally engage with it uh, for a while Um, and there were my plans for the evening gone out the window so ordinarily or you know what my job entails on election night is basically either on the phone or chatting on WhatsApp with with journalists all night saying, well, you know, it looks like it's going well here or not going very well there or, you know, I'm hearing that we're doing this is happening. And then you're also trying to present your narrative. I thought, well, I I don't have anything to say. There is, you know, uh, and it was unlike in the 2017 election where... You know, of course, the it seemed as polls closed or were about to close, the most likely outcome was a Tory majority. But I had a lot of things that I was, you know, ready to say that were positive, framing the campaign because, of course, we'd come up from twenty four, twenty five percent in the polls. We'd proven that a lot of the policies that we support are very popular, and that we were charting a course for new mainstream in British politics. Now, I didn't have any of those things to say when the exit poll came out and said we were going to be on one hundred and ninety seats or something. Of course, you know, we ended up about ten better, but you know, doesn't help much. Sure, sure. Um- Okay, well, well I, I, I guess I want to talk about sort of because it, it, it's a story that that has kind of deeper parts to it and, and that speaks to a lot of the kind of questions that have been on people's minds. I think over the, over the past few years, but also since, since that election as well, which is a bit about that sort of institutional journey that you've been on to, you know, from the campaign to momentum and to the leader's office. It's obviously a, a kind of process of institutionalisation. Um, how, how did you think about that process? Because, you know, obviously you had what was, you know, deeply unexpected campaign in the first place. And then you have to think about, you know, the way in which, you know, what momentum was for and how that organisation operated. But then also as you're transitioning into into the party, then that's a very, very different kind of institution and poses different challenges. So what do you make of the differences between the two? Um, <clears throat> so I think... The tension all the way through that process is uh, is is between the initial political impulse and you know for for me that was um, uh, you know both wanting the party to politically to be you know more socialist but also in its organizational form um, be more democratic and and horizontal, basically. I mean, not entirely horizontal, but you know, the, the, the Labour Party's sort of 20th century pyramid structure seems set up for the system where the, the most advanced form of communication is the post, and we could have very different, uh, a, a very differently structured party now in the 21st century. And the tension between that and then um, the basic facts that you that you learn of partially why it is how it is. Now, uh, I think you can too easily give in to those things and just sort of um, say, right, well, you know, now I'm in. The reason why it's like this is because it's easier to do such and such a thing. 
which <clears throat> really is you just taking on the subjectivity of the subject position moving through it. So it's that tension between learning how to use the machine as it is, why it is how it is through a process of still trying to trying to transform it. Now, looking back over the last <clears throat> nearly five years, I think that our great our, our, we're, the successes are larger on the on the level of political ideas and substantially weaker in terms of culture and practice within the party. I thought that culture and practice would be would be easier to change because it seems softer. So, okay, that's slightly jargony. Let me explain what I mean by that. So, on the on the level of politics, I mean <clears throat> policies that we support. So public ownership, higher taxes on the rich and so on, but also in, in terms of language, uh, socialism, being able to look beyond uh, just uh, the, the capitalist system that we currently live under. I thought that would be more challenging, there'd be more resistance to that. And the, uh, the idea that the party should empower its members to be politically active and be politically active in the ways that they want to do that basically applying the labor theory of value to activism how can we help people who want to be politically active who have paid to basically join our party who are part of the party to uh to to do their politics and to do their politics together and I think probably, it, you know, in in my view, and of course that comes from a very specific place, but it, in my view, our, our our greatest failure over the last four and a half years is that the party at local level is not hugely changed. Now, of course, it's changed in terms of personnel left in inverted commas slates are more likely to be elected than right uh, elected slates and the political language has improved in, in a socialist direction and in, a, in an anti-imperialist direction but still the way in which Labour members do their politics is a small minority of them turn up to a generally speaking not that interesting meeting once a month that's, that's quite procedural and where political conflict takes place in uh, elections for positions for people who then either don't do very much because they're positions on a committee to win to then not do very much or they're these sort of thankless um, uh, administrative positions which can be done very you know, f frankly can be done effectively from the right or, 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 or from the left being a CLP secretary is a sort of thankless um, uh, task of, of organising the basic structures so I think yeah, that's that's where it's been hardest to transform the party. Yeah, I mean, it is astonishing. I was writing, I was looking back and thinking, you know, it is amazing actually when, you know, this leadership came in, there was a lot of talk and a lot of fear, actually, from, you know, uh, sort of established parts of the Labour Party that, you know, there was going to be this kind of huge renovation, uh, you know, in the structure of doing things. And actually, you know, I, I do, in, in, I am in some ways sort of surprised about how difficult that seems to have been. Of course, there's all sorts of um, sort of theoretical background to this stuff. And you can talk about the iron law of oligarchy, you can talk about all, all the ways in which like it's very difficult to actually change uh, the structure of an organisation and much, much more difficult th than people perhaps expect. Um, I mean, I think also that there is a question here about, you know, and it, it's a question that I remember asking you actually, you know, back in, you know, back when you were involved in Momentum, about Momentum's role in, in terms of the party, because it has this kind of, you know, dual aspect in one sense, right? It faces into the kind of structure of the party, it also, you know, attempts to face outward. And in some ways, you know, one of the things that has been difficult watching momentum over the past few years in particular is, is how deeply involved it, it's been in kind of the, that question of sort of representation so most of its struggles most of its fights have been picked on the level of you know attempting to rebut things in the media or producing kind of uh social media interventions and and you know the, there's all sorts of questions there about the internal democracy of momentum all sorts of questions about its political direction so it's, it's curious it seems you know, you know to some degree a sort of uh, busted flush as far as kind of democratization of the party is involved. i don't think that necessarily is going to remain the case but uh, you know i think it's an open question one you know worth thinking about i suppose the other side to this as well is you know th there's been a lot of criticism of the leader's office you know especially i think increasingly over the course of the past year but it was there beforehand 
um, but very, very sharp in the past year over uh, what was certainly perceived within the party, you know, increasingly, you know, also on the left, right? It wasn't just coming from the right, about a kind of isolation, about a sort of withdrawal from the wider movement. And I'm sure there are reasons for that, but there's also been a sense that there was a kind of, you know, big sort of power play and faction struggle inside the leadership as well. I'm talking leadership Mm. of the party in the widest sense here, Um, not not within the person of Jeremy Corbyn himself. Um, So so what do you make of that? Is is that a reasonable uh, reading? Um, I think that momentum has been drawn substantially more into um, processes to defend the gains won um uh in 2015 in 2016 and in 2017 um because it had to uh of course that you know when you know we were originally debating what momentum should be and i remember in i think it was august 2015 i wrote a paper which was talking about this this dual role uh uh in the movement and orientating the movement towards the party and orientating the party towards movements. And the movement element of it has has um, not entirely fallen back, but I mean, has not been the priority. And that has been because of uh, momentum is, has inhabited, as many of us have, the gap between the opportunity that this moment presents and how, and the fact that this opportunity has not been caused by us. So let me explain Mm. what I mean by that. Across the global north, let's say, there is a clear crisis within the neoliberal economic and political system. There is a clear crisis in uh, legitimacy for political systems and following the financial crisis, you know, the, the basic common sense is the system does not work for the overwhelming majority of people. And that's what most people think and feel. And that's the opportunity. That's the opportunity that presents itself to the left. And that's why we've seen so many volatile and some of them progressive and some of them not progressive, some of them really rather not progressive moments in, in politics uh, in these sort of core global north countries over the last five or six years, or <clears throat> even stretching back a few years before that. Um, but these haven't happened because of the organised undermining of the system and the building of a new system by progressive social forces. They've happened because the system itself is falling apart. And I think momentum, in part, um, in part Jeremy's leadership, what we've been doing is inhabiting that gap between a system that is falling down and our new system which is so underbuilt and weak and trying to trying to keep keep open the possibility of of the bigger change while growing the forces that could eventually take that chance and so i think that's why um uh you know, going back to the question of democratization, really, what, you know, what what is the failing? Why hasn't this happened? And yes, you can look at certain things like it wasn't prioritised at key moments, or, or it wasn't staffed in particular ways. And you can look at different decisions, but ultimately, democratization, people taking more power for themselves, is an active process, and it's an active process from from below. It's not it it's not something that can be sort of retroactively done from above of course the, the above can open up space and there could be things that could be done but you know say for example if um the party were to and i i sincerely hope the party does do this one very simple thing that i think would help at, um uh, activism at a party at the clp level if everybody filled in an online form with their membership which says what are the particular types of organizing that they're interested in taking part in and what skills do they have and how wide they're happy for people to see their profiles. You know, if somebody um, is interested in someone with... um, uh, who's, who wants to campaign on housing, who has video skills, who lives in a half mile radius, you could keep it as small as that or as big, whatever you want, and then just see what happens. And people get put in, uh, put in touch with people. Now, that would be a very good technology to help things along. But 
if we're not at that level of development anyway what will happen might be slightly shallow. Yeah, but I mean, it, it, there's also like a deeper problem here, isn't there? Because one, for that to happen, there has, you know, there would have to be this sort of, a, you know, a, a, a cultural change within the party, you know, which which is very instinctively, has always been very instinctively, but is, you know, is still very instinctively centralised, command and control, uh, you know, that, that kind of stuff. That, you know, that's just there. And, and that's congenital to the Labour Party. It's been there, you know, since the beginning. It's, you know, the webs, <laughs> founders uh, of the party in some Ways, uh, not, not not solely, but you know, huge, huge, huge influence. You know, Fabian influence. You know, hates CLPs. I think they're stocked with sort of lunatics and you know, you know, bizarro enthusiasts. But you know, again, recognise their necessity. So you have this structure in which you know, their enthusiasm is is harnessed, but also like not allowed to politically direct the party. And so this, there is this congenital tension there. And it flares up and flares up through the twentieth century. You know, Blair sort of squashes it. Um, uh, and hollows out the party to, to to a very great extent, but that that instinct I think is still is still there. And I, you know, I, I genuinely think it's a difficult question. It's one that we've seen seen playing out. I don't think there are easy answers to it. But I suppose like one way to to kind of move on from this and and, and to tackle this is actually just through you know a few things. You know, a few crises, as it were, over the course of the past few years. I mean, one is obviously that kind of twenty sixteen uh, coup or attempted coup. Um, you know the the you know mass resignations among the parliamentary Labour Party, all you know all of which speaks to this question of you know MPs, you know the way they think about their judgment, the way they think about um, you know their role in the party and in left wing politics in general. Um, and, and I suppose like the the question that that <laughs> that I have, you know, for someone in your position, I think especially is you know, an interesting one, is like you know is there was there a way of leading from the left with the PLP as it was? As it is, you know, because the PLP is not substantially changed, smaller, um, but it's not substantially changed. Um, you know, you know, how far were their objections legitimate? Um, you know, and and you know, was it possible to rebuild after that in a way that was different? I think the, the moments of of greater success in um, in party management that <clears throat> fall into one of two camps. Uh, one is when the party was being driven very fast in one direction. And uh, you know, so like we saw in the 2017 election and, and following, and then broadly, um, the, a lot of the parliamentary party would cohere. Or um, if, yeah, basically, if you play by the normal procedural parliamentary rules, then you could get a brief window of peace, but it was very short-lived. So, for example, over Brexit, where understandably, in large part, our strategy was um, a ba- or our, our, our tactical positioning was based around um, the, the the splits within the parliamentary party. I think you know that was successful in the short term, but I mean ultimately, if we look back on it and look at the results, it it, it wasn't particularly. So it's hard to say um, concretely what you could have done different. Could have done differently. And it's not as if um, oh, if you know. So one school of thought says, well, you know, if you've been a bit nicer to them. I mean, Jeremy couldn't have been nicer to them to begin with. I mean, Jeremy's first shadow cabinet had four people who supported him, including himself. I mean, he was one of those four four people. Um, so, I mean, every every particular thing was tried, but I think you know, fundamentally. Uh, the change that we needed to see in the party and in politics more generally. I think this is partially why uh, we failed to engage with Brexit and it's partly explains or it's part of the reason why we lost badly last month um, uh, is that we too often fell into politics being in Westminster. We too often fell into politics being in Parliament and 
we 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 didn't win there. Mm. I, I I mean right. Like the, the, so so I suppose a related question to this is that question of twenty seventeen versus twenty nineteen, right? And so which is which is one a complicating factor for 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 all of the electoral observations, right? Um, including those which were like you know Alan Johnson as soon as the the results came through, which was like it's time to purge everyone. You know there mm. were lots of these that that felt like they were kind of reheated or had been prepared for twenty seventeen and just been kept in a drawer. Absolutely, and 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 not to try to defend the the result from last month which of course was very bad but i mean of the last five elections the two that had the largest number of votes for the labor party were 2017 and 2019 i mean of course we, we, we live in the electoral system, we do, and we play by those rules and we lost very badly. Right, by those but rules. So, so this is the question, I mean, it's a wider question for the party as a whole, right, is that there is this secular kind of decline in the Labour vote in, in which 2017 looks like an outlier, but some of the explanations or some of the defences that have come from the left, which I, you know, I think, you know, one, you know, so one is like, oh, had Labour adopted prefer my preferred Brexit position X by date Y, it would have been different. I think, you know, we can come to about Brexit a bit separately in a moment. I don't think that's true. But there's a more interesting, which I think is false, but interestingly false, which is that Labour didn't recapture its insurgent energy of 2017, and that's what led to the loss. So, so by that, like, you know, Corbyn should have been more pugnacious, the campaign should have been more populist, the party should have picked a fight against the media, etc., etc., etc. What do you make of that argument? Of the, the second one, yeah. the insurgent one? Um, uh, I mean, I have more sympathy with it than the if we'd been five degrees this way or five degrees that way on the, the leave-remain spectrum, we'd have done better. Although I, 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 I think that we could have been... There were positions that would have been better, but they, w- they weren't winning positions on that spectrum. I mean, the failure on Brexit, I think, is to shift in some way what it signifies and to engage in narrative but we can come to that in a minute mm. on the insurgency point um <clears throat> i think is a real one um because uh you know what what do we have in 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 2017 was people have been told that corbyn's terrible and his policies are evil or the other way around he's evil and the policies are terrible and then he comes out and everything he says is people want and he says it in a relaxed and human way and that obviously helps the help the surge in the intervening period especially the latter half of 2018 and and all of 2019 what most people would have seen of jeremy unfortunately would have been a few seconds of him in Parliament saying something quite arcane and he ba- became part of the process. And I think um, I think that did um, rob us in part uh, of the insurgency. It did make Jeremy more like another politician. I think you know, that, that was damaging. But I also think it meant that when we did shift register, which we did for quite a lot of the 2019 election, not all of it, but you know, it did start off in a populist register. There were there um there was you know, railing against the bad bosses and the dodgy mm-hmm. landlords and the big polluters and the tax dodgers and all the rest of it. Um it was more in Congress, it was less believable. And then that I think that play and then, then there are other factors which you know maybe playing like the weather you can it i mean i sound i mean i'm not saying labor didn't win because of the weather obviously that would be ridiculous but um if you're running a very big populist insurgent campaign and your image of the day is thousands of people people hanging out of trees and jeremy saying something nice versus yeah the the image i think of the general election for labor party and this was a big failure on our part i think was you know jeremy at a podium that's what most people would would have seen I mean, I, so, so my, my objection to, to to this stuff, like not that, but the the kind of you know, uh, you know, a more intense sort of populist message. It, it, I, I mean, I think as you say, I think there's something to it, but like, it's mostly just too comfortable for me, right? Mm. As an explanation, like I, you know, it's it's you know, had we just doubled down, had we just gone harder, you know, we'd have we'd have done better. And I, you know, for me, there's a danger here. It's a perennial delusion, you know, on, on, on the left that you, know, you you end up repeating these intellectual and political habits, you know despite coming up against what are probably hard limits you know insurgency is good but you know it's one it's hard in you know it's always hard in one of the the you know extremely venerable you know two most venerable parties you say the party's 100 years old it's been in government it's you know one of the two parties of government in what is still effectively a two-party system 
That, by the way, is you know, something that the pundits were wrong about. You know, it's, it's worth noting that about 18 months ago, saying, oh, well, it's a five-party system now, that seems not to have uh, uh, been the case. But it also has intrinsic limits, right, this stuff. You know, it, you know, the left likes insurgency, the left rates insurgents, because the left likes insurgency and, and, and insurgency. And, I'm, I, you know, the, the question of whether that translates in terms of electoral psychology, you know, there's a point at, at which saying, you know, you know you're all terrible you're all you know these people are, are, are awful etc 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 it doesn't work in itself that there's something else that was missing there and that there's something else you know about trust and about competence and about you know <laughs> you know you know if you're offering a kind of profound transformation then you know it's people's lives you're talking about and that that's that's actually you know that that is has been a, a very difficult thing to, to to get across i think credibly um but anyway, so just on on, I think there's there is definitely something in that, um, uh, and I mean there are insurgencies of different sorts. There is, there are there's the the insurgents there's the pure populist insurgency, which um, is one that I I think there could there there probably are hard limits to, which says we are going to in this moment where people don't trust things where the system is breaking down we are going to construct the uh the the, the fantastic people against the these bad guys and people are going to get excited uh enough about that or there is the i think a more focused insurgency which again you're looking at how developed are the uh, progressive forces and how strong are the, the the actual demands that are coming up from the population and i and that that we didn't champion and you could have if you combined an insurgency which is basically breaking rules don't get sucked into parliament ignore what they're saying about you say your own thing as your basic tactics and then your strategy is here are a, a small number of demands which relate to different groups of the population that are actively making them and so people can see how that's going to be delivered i think that you know that's a more possible way and i there's a there's a point that you make in your um lrb piece which is is very good and i think people should read it um uh, about uh, johnson's call to anti-politics and how get Brexit done is right well let's stop stop with all of this politics and I, I quite liked your point about um, two referendums next year you know he wants more politics mm -hmm. don't, don't vote for them they'll give you more politics I, I, I do think we did struggle with that but if we'd had this sort of focused insurgent uh, um, approach then you could you could say no I mean the the people doing politics are you and you're getting this thing you know you want yeah. higher yeah, pay yeah, you yeah. want but th th that requires a defense of politics of a kind right like not necessarily the politics that exist but it requires making a space for a kind of politics yes and defense of politics and, and, and the possibility for politics and this i think is the thing that is is tricky within the within the labor party the labor party's form because um now, I can't remember actually if you made this point or I read this point from somebody else yesterday, but it's a very good one, um, which is that you know, generally, the you know, historically, the party's response to the democratic deficits, many in Britain, has been, we'll just have more Labour representatives. Yeah, <laughs> right, it's, it's a very good, I think that's a very good point. Um, uh, and I think too often our instincts were i mean they were i think if you look at um some of the opening and closing statement scripts that for both jeremy and richard bergen and, and becky tended towards a defense of politics but a sort of defense of politics as is you no know, the state can do things and we can be in the state yeah absolutely um We'll come on to Brexit in a bit because I think it is interesting the way in which kind of Brexit has sort of reshaped the landscape and the, the kind of spaces of political possibility. But I want to talk about the press, like <laughs> uh, because you you know you have you, you had probably more interaction with the press and the lobby than probably anyone else on the left in politics certainly. Um, daily contact with the most prominent reporters and journalists. Um, lots of the left, I think, quite rightly, have been driven around a twist by the behaviour of the media in, in the past election, and longer, back, you know, back, back further than that. What did it look like from your side? Uh, you know, were there notable changes in the behaviour of the press through the period? 
Yeah. Um, I mean, most notably uh, after 2017. Um, although there was, of course, a, you know, the, the first response from the sort of hive mind of the uh, of the lobby, and um, of course there were notable individual exceptions and all the rest of it. But the hive mind of the lobby, straight after 2017, wanted to say this was the re- the revolt of the Remainers, and now Labour must put Chucker and Munner and Yvette Cooper back in the shadow cabinet. Now, fortunately, that narrative never particularly took off because. Um, it was so uh, laughable. But um, we, there was a period of time when more of them tried to engage with us on our own terms. Now, by engage with us on our own terms, I mean intellectually. I don't mean as part of the, the back and forth between press officer and reporter, but trying to understand, you know, why is it that we are doing these things that they think are bizarre or wrong, but to try to understand them. And then after... Um, we lost last month the the, the sort of basic um, posture of derision and illegitimacy began to began to creep back in. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's what you know you're playing most of the time. I mean, from the position of the the left, you've got um, most of the uh, printed press are billionaire owned and Tory backing. And those that aren't are, are generally liberal, not socialist. Uh, and so they're both set against you in different in, in different ways. And you can make different alliances with different ones at different points. And then that all feeds into broadcast. Um, and also, I think part of the, you know, the, the basic posture for the journalists who, who pride themselves more on balance and, and, and fairness is that, you know, that is... What, what a lot of them really very much do. But it's generally done, at least in my experience, is, well, I'll, I'll try to perform an equal hostility or um, uh, to your claims and to the other claims, rather than, which I think generally will have an anti-left bias because we've got less power, um, rather than trying to say, right, well, why, why are you doing this thing and why are they doing this thing? And then presenting those things together, maybe with some facts which are mutually agreed... And then that would provide the the picture. So we never really we never really got that. I mean, another factor of the of of, of uh, lobby reporting and the the, the lobby pack is that um, the story moves on so fast, and it it therefore is hugely more personality driven, and uh, and you know sort of fine point scoring <laughs> rather than taking any look back at it or building up degrees of expertise in in particular areas. And I think you know part you know partially that might be down to the personnel, but I mean also they work quite a lot of hours and they have to work quite a lot of hours chasing after the the personal silly stories. And yeah, so there sure. isn't time I, for I mean, there is this question about standpoint, I, I, I guess, where it's something that struck me, you know, over the course of the past few years is like, how, how, you know, how much all of this is kind of predicated on that question of insideriness, uh, you know, that, that question of kind of internal power struggles and, you know, like it's always, I, I, I guess, a much more interesting or, or certainly more easily available story. I guess, like, just to, to, to get a little deeper on that question I don't want to spend too long sort of whinging about media um, (laughs) because I do it quite a lot Um, but there is that question I think for any you're you're following Jello Jello Biafra's (laughs) fantastic dictum don't hate the media become the media so you're okay I I agree I agree Um, but there is that question about you know so so obviously everyone recognises that the press and press relations are important um, you know, because they they shape so much about how politics is done, how it works, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And and obviously, the question that comes for any successor to Corbyn, you know, from any part of the party, you know, is is how you, how one resists. Because I think it's important to remember that the press did make light work of Ed Miliband and Gordon Brown as well. It's not, you know, uniquely Corbynite problem. Um, you know, how you resist that media imperative, you know, how, how, how you resist kind of the, you know, what is effectively kind of press veto power, you know, um, I, I, and I feel this is a real risk at the moment, like, because quite rightly, all, all the successor candidates, all the candidates in the leadership race are thinking about, you know, how you close the chapter in which, like, this, as you say, kind of derision, this kind of, you know, very you know, sharp policing of what of the acceptable within British politics is done by the press, you know, how you improve, uh, you know, that question of relationship. But but it's hard to, for me to see that there's, there's a clear solution to that. 
so I I think that you know, whoever whoever does um, you know, my job for the next leader should rather than thinking about you know, media strategy as um, you know how we're going to speak to this program or that program or um, we are trying to reach these audiences and we will use these outlets to reach these audiences in in this way or um, uh, another approach which it, some people are saying on the left, which I don't think would work either, which is basically a rejectionist approach. You know, don't engage with them too much. Um, look, Boris Johnson's only done one interview since becoming prime minister. I mean, it, it, we're, we're not in the same place at all. But the one thing that we should learn from Boris Johnson, Dominic Cummings, Lee Kane, and so on, and also um, similar uh, or you know other right-wing um, successful leaders like. Donald Trump, I mean, successful in terms of their media media approach, is zoom out. What's ha- what's happening uh, for people who are following it doesn't really matter. They're a small minority, and they already know what they they think. Zoom out. What does it look like to your passerby who doesn't even really know it's Tory party conference? They're just seeing uh, that they're, they're just um, you know seeing oh that. You know, like Theresa May in 2016 kicked off a row about uh, immigration. Perfect for them. Not because of how they did the actual row or anybody who's following it. And of course, there are embarrassing elements of it and all the rest of it. But just they wanted to get the, the message across. We're going to do something about immigration. And that's what the, the zoomed out message was. And likewise, I think that's the that's the approach that... Um, Cummings and co have have taken is what is the spectacle what is the thing that people who've got the volume turned down which is the rational approach I mean the approach that 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 you and the, and probably most people listening to this is not the, is not the rational approach yeah. to, to politics is with the volume turned down what is it that they're what is it that they're still hearing and try to construct and your rouse and your conflict in that sense in the sense that uh, the way that you have the conflict tells the story, and uh, and and I think it was on that level that we were roundly defeated. Right. All right. It's Brexit day, so it's arrived with something of a whimper. I have to say, um, Big Ben will not bong. Um, but, but you know, I mean, like it, it is odd actually that it's that it's arrived with with what is you know effectively a state of exhaustion. I think on every side. And I wonder, you know, because so there are two two questions to this. You know, obviously, Corbynism, as such, you know, started with this kind of very strong anti-austerity message. Where it was a message about you know the kind of economic and political structure of the country, and it it, it has kind of felt to me throughout that that it's you know the Brexit has been a kind of millstone around the neck of you know a party attempting to talk about something else. And I think you know sometimes that perception will have led to mistakes but there are also people saying like okay well you you look at how you know Nigel Farage has succeeded in getting his thing done without ever being elected to parliament right um you know how Boris Johnson has taken on the mantle of Brexit and won and, and they say huh we should do something like that now I don't think you can do that with Brexit because Brexit relies on a kind of politics of nationhood that's kind of very difficult for the left you can see that in the way the party, the Labour Party, has been split in two by the question. Um, not exactly in two, but split in two. Um, not, so those, not split in half, yeah, but split no. in two. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but so, you know, the, 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 I guess there are two questions here. Like one, you know, how was it possible to do the kind of politics that, you know, Corbyn came into the leadership wanting to do, <clears throat> given that that referendum happened and definitely seems to have reshaped politics in Britain. Was it still possible to continue on that same course, that kind of anti-austerity course? One. Question two, then in its wake, right? So the, the process of Brexit is in some sense, well, well the, the, the political process of Brexit is in some sense over, right? I mean, it has all sorts of like huge things that are coming down the line. But it seems to me that like one chapter has closed. It, how does it change politics now for whoever succeeds Corbyn you know, what's the terrain on which they have to engage and how is it possible to do the kind of politics that were there in 2017 manifesto and the 2019 manifesto that have been there throughout kind of the Corbynite leadership is it possible because this is one of the things I detect in 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 you know lots of you know Labour Party members who are feeling very unsure at the moment whether those politics that they kind of support are, are even possible right now so the the questions are one 
could we have carried on with the anti-austerity course to how should the new leader engage with the terrain of Brexit? Mm -hmm. So I think both of those are dealing with the question that arose the the moment before. So what you know why what is Brexit? Brexit is not leaving the EU. It's not leave. I'm for leave. No, you're for for Brexit. Brexit means Brexit. It is a signifier, and then you can argue how much of it it's floating or connected to particular politics and groups of people, but that has been used to to here to bring together a very large coalition of quite disparate forces behind the the leadership of the right and and essentially the you know the the leadership of the the ruling forces in in society now an anti-austerity uh discourse itself or trying to set that up as the the main signifier of course doesn't function because the other you're not the other side aren't playing that game now if they went when they were it was it was very effective they're not playing that game now i think the challenge was always there is no good place for us it in uh, against or with Brexit as defined by the right or as defined by the the, the, the technical liberals, the media political class, the, uh, the hard, soft, it's all about technical procedures and how close or far you are to the EU and EU rules and all the rest of it. I mean, Brexit isn't to do with the EU. Fundamentally, I mean, the, the, the Leave identity and the Remain identity are not really to do with the EU, even if it wraps itself up in a flag or it sticks two fingers up, mm-hmm. uh, you know, howling uh, on at Dover across across the channel. Um, so I think, we no, we needed to do something different and we need to, um, to bring together a new... Uh, you know, a new set, a new signifier, set of signifiers that can bring together our coalition, our social majority that can uh, that that can take power, and which sort of answers the, the 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 second question about what they should do with the terrain of Brexit. Um, the other side aren't going to be fighting on the terrain of Brexit. You can see what they're doing; it's over. They now want it to be. A, a vanishing mediator. They want you know it, it, it helps them. De- create a, a a very big political block that they now need to turn in some way, you know, to deepen and have more of a an economic and a social element to uh, to that block to 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 keep it together. So, actually, it should you know whoever the new leader is, and of course I hope that's Rebecca Long Bailey. I think that's our our best chance. Um, should. Uh, uh, should be looking t- for, you know, how do you build for the next thing? And the word Brexit or post-Brexit, I don't really think should enter into it. Mm. I, I mean, it's, yes, it, I, I think I agree. I mean, the, the, there is also this kind of tendency on the left to fight, you know, the last battle or try to refight the mm. last battle despite you know, having lost. Uh, it's really like, it's, it's, it's so clearly repeated across, you know, it's not mm. just in British politics, it's across the world. Now, I think, we, we, you know, what we, should, what we should do is look at the various... Um, constituencies, I don't mean geographic, social constituencies that currently have existing demands and existing demands for change and ones that that we think objectively should have demands but they are n- not that well developed and see how that could be knitted together and what language you would have. And then, most importantly, going back to the point about spectacle and conflict... How do you create the spectacle that plays out your conflict? Mm-hmm. What is what, you know? Brexit's very fortunate for 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 them because they had a referendum, a key point of national focus. You know, how are you over the next four years going to create these moments where people are looking? What is the spectacle mm-hmm. going to be that coheres those different blocks? And I think that's the sort of I know that sounds slightly abstract, no, I, but I think that's I, the sort I, I of thinking that, that, think, that we need, because then we'll be doing it on our terms. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I suppose this does bring me on to the, to the other part of this question, right, which is which is Boris Johnson, right? And, and you know, because a lot of the post-defeat analysis talks about Labour's weaknesses, less about kind of Johnson's strengths and the strengths of the Tory party in cohering that block. Because it wasn't so long ago that, you know, it, it looked like the Tory party was really riven um, with kind of profound conflicts mm-hmm. about this stuff. It's a phenomenal right. success story. I mean, the, uh, 10 years ago, the idea that a political party would be getting 45% of the vote. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, so, so there is this question, like, one, like, you know, it obviously became clear that Tory Remainers were Tories before they were Remainers. I think that's, you know, extremely clear. Um, 
you know, in, 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 in that sense, he's got, you know, control over that block. Uh, his campaign was obviously a lot easier than the Labour Party's in some ways. Well, that's true. But I guess part of your job, maybe it wasn't part of your job, I don't know, uh, was to figure out who he was and what he was doing and how to get that across in a way that repelled people. But he's actually, I mean, it's the thing that's kind of, you know, struck me through the campaign. He's a remarkably slippery kind of Teflon-like politician. You know, could you have approached him differently? Um, I mean, the danger with me talking about this is I end up saying, well, if 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 everyone had just done the thing that I wanted us to do, yeah, then yeah, we yeah, would sure, have been sure, in a good sure. position. But I, I think that um, you know, there were, broadly speaking, three ways that he could have been framed and presented. Uh, one was the, the far-right danger, danger, danger version. The, the second was the you can't trust him, he's a liar version. And the third is, he's just a Tory, he's just, a, you know, he's, he's just operating in the interest of the ruling class again. And of course, they had versions. I think all of those were in there, right? They were all, I mean, they can, yeah, they were all in there. I mean, as unfortunately was clear throughout our campaign, we actually were running a number of different strategies on a number of different questions all simultaneously because... Um, you know, we couldn't. It, it couldn't get honed down into one, but yeah, I mean, I, I think. You no, know, if you're looking, if you're looking at who are the voters that they are the most desperate to win over, who are the shakiest for their for their block, and they are uh, non-traditional Tory Leave voters, who also happen to be overrepresented in towns in the Midlands and the North. So I would go, I, you know, I would have gone for the one that is most likely to have purchase with them, which I think is the, he's a, you know, he's a, he's a Tory, that one, rather than the far right threat or the, you can't trust him, he breaks, he, he, he breaks rules and doesn't keep his word one, which, you know, we did somewhat, I mean, I think the, um, the, the NHS Trump thing did work in that lots of people follow that story and, I saw a poll, I think it was on the front page of the Sunday Times, just gone, showed that the overwhelming majority of the country are really concerned about mm. the prospects for the NHS of a Trump deal. But that didn't Trump get Brexit done. No. No. I, I mean, I suppose the, the, the flip side of this will, will, I guess, also, I don't want to it for too long, but that, there's the questions, open questions, the question I'm thinking about at the moment, actually, is, is like what Johnsonism mm. is. And, you know, I, it's not I, set. Yeah, it's not set. And I, I mean, I think that's, you know, but the, you know, where should, you know, because this is, this is also going to be a question, right, for, for the Labour Party, the wider left as well, is like, is I think it's wrong to assume that it's kind of going to look like the Toryism that we've known. It's going to be a very weird melange. Um, and, and what concerns me is that the leadership of the Labour Party you know, Labour Party members, but the wider left as well, are going to keep talking about it in a way that actually just doesn't bear any resemblance to what he's actually doing and how he comes across and who he's speaking to. Yeah, I, I think that's a, I think that's a very real danger. Again, um, you know, we're in part guilty of what um, we say and are broadly right that the the media are guilty of which is not trying to engage with something on its own terms to understand it so clearly you know by going to Sedgefield the day after election and what he said he's giving a speech in Sunderland the noises that they're making so far I mean clearly he's trying to be a a, a different type of Tory leader and is trying to draw a real di distance between the last nine nearly 10 years of, uh, of of Tory rule. And now, of course, it's not clear exactly how he is going to do that. But the fact that he is trying to do that should be at the forefront of our minds. And, and we should be f watching them far more carefully than we usually do. Because normally we go, right, they're trying to do this thing. They're just Tories. That's what they're trying to do. Now, there's clearly a lot more experimentation and, uh, and, and possible different trajectories as they try to bring together a block. And that provides real, you know, real risks. The voters that he, Boris Johnson said lent them the vote because of Brexit could be gone permanently. But it also provides opportunities because... The, the you know the fundamental problem the reason why the system was breaking apart 
under its own weight is because it wasn't delivering benefits to the overwhelming majority of people. And just because Boris Johnson won an election doesn't mean that the system can suddenly develop, uh, um, deliver benefits to the overwhelming majority of people. And that coalition that Thatcher was able to bring together through expanding asset ownership and access to debt, well, that option isn't available. Uh, pre uh, uh, Macmillan about ex- expanding uh, expanding housing and increasing production in the economy. Well, that doesn't seem available. So there are lots of opportunities for the left, and of course, it, it, the the Tory Party will not remain settled on this point forever. There are still going to be, and there are still you know the party's absolutely ram packed full of arch neoliberals, people who love austerity, the interests of different fractions of capital. I mean that's all there. So I think I, I think it it bears more importance to to follow them, follow them seriously, and to try to understand what they're doing. Mm. We've got just under five minutes left. I was going to ask you a bit about kind of the international context, but um, I think we can maybe come back to that. If you future day um I, I because there is something like i think that's that's kind of concerning you know lots of Labour party members you know feeling you know deep defeat and to a degree i think despair and there is you know a sort of dialectics of despair as, as it were like where you go between like you know not wanting to change anything and jettisoning everything and you know or, or trying to mimic the right because they've been successful and stuff like this um I, and obviously there's a leadership contest going on. What do you make of the leadership contest so far? You're obviously, you know, you've just said you're for Rebecca long But it does seem to me there's, you know, a lot that's not being said in there. And there's a lot that's not being talked about. And there's a lot that's not being thought about. And it's partly to do with the, the, the way the campaign is done, the way the hustings are done and so on. What would you like to see in that debate? The questions that should be being asked? Um, I think... Questions about democratising the British state. How can the British state be more open to uh, the people that it is theoretically meant to serve, but which it governs over? I think questions of how do you turn the party into an organising force in a way in which it isn't? And then I think the, you know, the elephant in the room, which is what can we do to strengthen the organisational base of progressive forces in uh, in this country? How can we get far more people in trade unions and active in them? How can we build a national tenants union? And these, sort, these sorts of things so that we are on firmer ground rather than responding to the other side's collapse. And then just on your thing about uh, the leadership election... You were saying lots of things being being left out. I mean, in 2015, lots of things that hadn't been on the table for ages were on the table. But I mean, look look back at the 2010 uh, 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 leadership election. You know, you're not seeing. Um, it's not in black and white. It's you know, it's you can work out that Ed Miliband is trying to gesture in this direction because of the shade of grey with, uh, mm. with with David and so on. Um, and I think it's probably more comparable to that. And for you know, a lot of us, we're just remembering that glorious summer of 2015, which it's not going to be like. And also, if you look at all the candidates, in, including Jess Phillips, even though now she's dropped out, I mean, they're all running to the left of Andy Burnham, the next most left. Uh, candidate. Mm. How credible, of course, that is, is an open question. All right, we're nearly over. Um, and just, obviously, you're going to hand over... Now, well, you've, you've gone, but someone's yeah. going to follow up in your yeah. job, you know, in the, in the party. What's your advice for the next leader and for the person in your role? I think work out what it is that you want to do on your terms and put in much more effort, as much effort as you can, as much time, make as much time and space for that as you possibly can, because it's so full on, you are dragged this way and that, the pressures are enormous, the demands are enormous, and you need to be doing things in your own voice, in your own way, as much as possible, but don't try to do too much. Make sure you've got one thing that you're able to do in each bit of time. and, you know, whoever it is, good luck to them. <laughs> All right. Um, 
James Schneider, thank you very much Thanks for, for having for me. For interview. I hope we'll have you back on uh, in whatever you do next. I don't know. I don't know whether you actually know what you're doing. I've got this, absolutely no idea. No. Okay. Well, I, I hope we're going to hear from you a bit more now that you're out from under the cover of silence. This has been Navarra FM on Resonance 104.4 FM. I have been and will continue to be James Butler as the uh, inevitable period of reflection goes on. Uh, and as the Labour Party, of course, moves to its next leader and as we face down the next five years of Conservative government, it's still going to go on. Uh, right, we'll be back at the same time, in the same place, next week. Goodbye. This podcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. You can find more podcasts as well as video interviews and articles at our website, navaramedia.com. And you can subscribe to our podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Navara Media. We're not funded by advertisers or wealthy backers, but rely on our subscribers. We ask for just one hour of your wage a month to keep us going. You can sign up at support.navaramedia.com and give us just one hour of your wage a month so we can keep working round the clock. That's support.navaramedia.com. <laughs>